You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. Today, I have a really special treat for those of you who are committed to appreciating yoga as a cultural practice and avoiding appropriative behaviors. Cultural appropriation in the Western yoga world has become somewhat of a hot button topic lately. And today's guest is one of the people who brought this perspective to the forefront over the past few years. She's done this through her groundbreaking Honor Don't Appropriate Yoga Summit with over 10,000 participants. And I'm speaking, of course, of Susanna Barkataki. If you're new to the conversation around cultural appropriation, I recommend that you begin with episode 155 called What is Cultural Appropriation with Rina Deshpande. That episode assumes no prior understanding of the topic, and Rina unpacks the basics with clarity and precision and compassion. In fact, compassion or karuna is a core tenant of yoga philosophy, and it's the heart of the social justice movements that Susanna outlines in her book, Embrace Yoga's Roots, Courageous Ways to Deepen Your Yoga Practice. Embrace Yoga's Roots is part history book and part social justice manifesto with invitations to practice self-inquiry woven throughout. An Indian yoga practitioner in the Shankaracharya tradition, Susanna Barkataki supports teachers and practitioners to lead with equity, diversity, and yogic values. Susanna has an honors degree in philosophy from UC Berkeley, a master's in education from Cambridge College, and she is a diversity, accessibility, inclusivity, and equity yoga unity educator. She's also the founder of Ignite Yoga and Wellness Institute, and she runs 200 and 500 hour yoga teacher training programs. Let's jump right in to this conversation with Susanna Barkataki, and I will see you on the other side. Susanna, welcome to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Yay, I'm happy to be here. Thank you. I'm super excited to hear a bit about your story. And I'd love to start with your early journey with yoga. Who were your early teachers and what was your practice like when you first started? Mm. Yeah, I love this question because we all have those early teachers and, and that early journey. And in my life, I feel like there's been a series of teachers and, and often in Hindu culture and Indian culture, your first gurus are your parents. And that has definitely been true for me. So my father in particular was my first teacher of yoga and yogic philosophy and also my extended family, you know, in, in our culture as well, it's, you're not really raised by just your nuclear family. You're raised by the aunties and uncles and everyone's telling you what to do and, and how to be and bringing you to pujas and to practices. And so for me, it was, it was that expanded community of, of my family who were my first teachers. And I remember, you know, if I was like, having trouble sleeping or stressed out about a test at school, 
my dad would guide me through, you know, like systematic relaxation practices or pranayam, you know, practices for, for calming and then focus. And it was just kind of the backdrop of my life, but I didn't necessarily know or realize or fully recognize it as such until later when I in college was intentionally looking to study and practice yoga more in depth. So it was kind of there, but it was like the air that I was swimming in without it being, uh, or the, the water I was swimming in, the air I was breathing, um, without it being explicit. And then I went to study yoga and, and practice and I looked around me at what was available and I was like, oh, this is nothing like what's happening at home. I don't understand. Like, why are people wearing tight clothes, working out to loud music? This is not yoga. This is something else. This is fitness. And it was very disconcerting until I found a YMCA yoga class. You know, there's those like jewels of teachers that are just kind of teaching somewhere that are super humble and um, really in tune with yoga philosophy. And this teacher taught asana in a way that invited folks in, including myself, to a practice that connected us deeper with our own experience and our own heart, mind, body, soul. And it's like, oh yeah, this feels like a different version, you know, kind of westernized version of the qualities I'm experiencing at the temple with my family, you know, in India. And so that teacher made a huge impact. And so I wanted to learn more about yoga and formally kind of go deeper and get taught, go into yoga teacher training, but I actually could not find any trainings that looked like that class or like my family's context. So I went to India, you know, and um, lived there for a couple of years. And while I was there, I had a few teachers, um, namely Shankarji, and Kabirji and Shankarji is in the Advaita Vedanta lineage, um, Hatha yoga teacher, and was really more focused on living yoga as a justice practice and a practice of yoga ethics in his context, you know, which was in Bihar, one of the poorest states, and teaching yogic philosophy and bringing it alive to anyone who is interested in learning, including. Um, Dalit folks and outcast folks who would previously not have had access to these kinds of teachings because of caste discrimination. And so he focused a lot more on sutra study, textual study, um, applied, you know, like, um, like um, engaged yoga. And that was my experience of like, let's sit and listen and discuss and then let's like go do community and village actions and here we're engaging in yoga you know together and then in the school that we were we were working at and volunteering at it's like all of life became yoga so I feel like I've been very lucky to have um, many different teachers but in particular Shankarji and Kabirji are the two that I would say have had the most influence on like my formal training did you talk to your dad throughout that training? Did you come back to him and say, dad, those seeds you planted, here's what's coming out for me. Like, and even maybe now, what is your relationship with your dad 
like, especially around yoga, if he's still living, which I, yeah, (laughs) yeah, he is. I just got to go over. So just for backstory for folks, sometimes these are like sweet moments. So I hadn't seen him all through COVID, but I got to move back. So I'm back home where, and home is Los Angeles, you know, where my family emigrated to, which is a whole other story because I was born in England uh, to mixed race parents. My dad's Indian, my mom's British. And we moved to LA to escape violence against mixed race and, and Indian and Pakistani families at that time that I was growing up. And so I got to go celebrate his 75th birthday uh, just this weekend. So I am close to my dad and grateful, so grateful to, you know, be back in that place of like being with the first guru, you know, being with, with him as teacher and also as he gets older, being in the role as so many of us are, this kind of dual um, child and also caregiver and supporter. So it was really powerful for both he and I because, and folks who also have family members who are immigrants uh, from other countries may relate to this, but my dad really had to assimilate. So he worked in education and he basically had to like have the mindset of, I'm going to fit in, I'm going to be as white as possible, focus on dominant culture as much as possible to the extreme that for many years, he said, I don't experience racism. Now, this is coming from someone who like, we didn't get housing because landlords were discriminating against us. He kept getting passed over for promotions at his job, you know, being a brown man, but he didn't experience racism, right? So I was watching all this and like, there is something not adding up, but now I have compassion. You know, when I was young, I was like, this makes no sense. You know, what's going on? But he also had internalized a lot of, and this is quite common, the colonial narrative about yoga, about Hinduism, about a lot of indigenous practices is that they are, um, they are heathen or um, bad or in some way like, like fringe or not normal or even like dangerous and criminal. And so he, to some extent, internalize that narrative about yoga and about some of the practices that are, you know, just kind of inherent in our culture. So the things he was passing on to me were like slipping through, but they weren't part of an overall narrative of there's so much that our culture has to offer. We really should have pride. And it was more like, here's some practices, they're helpful, but it wasn't connected to like, here's an overall system of you know yoga or well-being and so as i was studying and living and learning and sharing my experiences with him it was like i felt like it was these drops of healing balm for him as well where he was like oh yeah like there are really valuable things about our culture and oh yeah like finding points of connection and so it's been definitely a journey i hope that at some point he and I can go together to India and, um, you know, he can have a different relationship to his own homeland and, um, and culture that's alive now, you know, not just one from the past. And uh, so we will see that story is, is to be continued, but certainly there's been some healing for both of us on the, on the path. That's such a beautiful role that you are, able to play with him of being the mirror and 
allowing him to see the beauty and the wholeness that's already inside of him, which is what yoga teaches <laughs> and what he taught you in a sense. He really did. Yeah. And so it's like, and that's like the heart of the practice, right? For folks listening is how can we like this practice that we love yoga that maybe has taught us so much or connected our hearts or opened our souls. It's given us so many gifts. It's like, no one wants to be told like, do yoga. It's going to make you happier. You know, we might know that that's true um, or it'll connect you to your purpose. Right. Like no one wants to actually hear that, but being the teacher by, by modeling and living and then reflecting. And also for me, so much of my practice is like being a teacher by learning. Like, I think I'm first and foremost, a student more than anything else. And so always learning from, from everyone I'm around, including family members. And I have a lot of opportunity to do that recently, you know, and it's, um, it's a real gift. Tell me about some aspect of yoga that you have been studying recently, or you're kind of in the middle of studying right now. I'm really exploring personal practice. Um, so sadhana, and I'm working on my second book. So after I wrote Embrace Yoga's Roots, I, you know, there, there was a lot of feedback on the book. Some was, uh, a lot has been very supportive and like, wow, this is the conversation we need to have. And thank you for saying the things I've been thinking, but didn't know how to put into words. Um, some not so helpful feedback, like the book is racist, uh, which it's not, right? <laughs> it's, it's not putting down any one group it's saying, here's some issues of systemic oppression and racism that we need to address together to move forward, to really practice yoga as unity. But the one really like, like the critique that sort of was like the one that got through and was like, ah, kind of hurt um, because it, there's always like an element of truth in those was there's not enough practice in here. There's not enough, you know, I want more. And I understand I had to stop writing somewhere because the book was already 300 pages long, you know, or like upper 200 pages. Um, so that is what was missing. And part of why it was missing is even though I've had a personal practice now for decades, uh, it wasn't what was in the foreground. And so that wasn't what I was writing about. I had, it sort of like was the pre-conversation that had to come out before this next conversation, which is around, okay, now we've got it. Like we understand, you know, it's like yoga's practice of personal and social transformation. Let's explore that personal part. And so in order to write anything, um, I always love to be in a real deep, continued engagement and practice with it. And so I've been exploring, you know, what does my sadhana look like? As I'm a householder, you know, for folks who are listening, you might not know, uh, but I have a kiddo, you know, so I have a young child who's eight and a partner and parents, right? Who I'm engaging in caregiving and relationship with. And, um, and so, my practice is really, my sadhana is really different than what it was like when I was living in India and essentially more in kind of like a monastic um, renunciate environment for a couple of years. And so the whole first, I would say like decade of my practice has looked very different. 
then, you know, now there's kind of an intermediary time. And then this decade with a child has looked very different. And so exploring um, the relationship of how can all of life be sadhana? How can all of my life be practice? And what are the ways that, what are the things that support me in that? That's beautiful. Yeah. So I love, and I am completely in alignment with this idea of let's have our sadhana as part of our conscious awareness as many minutes of the day as we can. And at the same time, in order to make that possible, it's helpful to have a ritualized version. I'd love to hear a little bit about what kind of container you create for sadhana for yourself and what does that look like right now? Yeah, and I'm going to answer and I'd love for you to answer too. <laughs> if you're cool with answering that yeah. um, after we. So every morning I wake up and I practice gratitude, you know, and sometimes some mantra practice right upon waking and then do walking meditation into my, my practice space, which is, you know, just over here, like maybe for people who can see, I just have like a yoga mat on the floor in, in this room and uh, I'll do a combination, sometimes in different order of reading texts, journaling, um, asana practice, pranayama, and then uh, dhyana meditation. And sometimes the order is different, but it's usually I wake up, I read, then I journal, then asana and pranayama, and then um, dhyana meditation. And often mm, it's probably 30 to 30 minutes to an hour uh, of my morning. And then sometimes, depending on what's happening, perhaps tending the altar, I have an altar to ancestors and different energies that, uh, that I work with and, and cultivate. So that's really a lot of the foundation of practice that you're, you're absolutely right, because I have that practice as things come up in the day. I'm able to draw from that wellspring of calm, of peace, of centeredness, and then respond, you know, with the joyful things, with joy, and with the challenging things, or things that throw me off balance, with maybe not always equanimity, but noticing and having the space between that thing and then my reaction. Yeah, it's like, you know, even a drop more equanimity is helpful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can you tell me, can you describe your dhyana meditation? Yeah. So often I will sit and follow my breath. Um, I will also do different metta or like compassion practices, loving kindness practices, um, I also do uh, japa. I have on my altar, I have uh, my mala beads and I'll use my mala beads with a mantra. And usually that's silent, not out loud. But sometimes I do chant or um, I also have a, um, a shruti box. And so I'll not as much right now because the rest of the household is asleep. And so I don't want to wake them up because if I wake my kiddo up, then the practice time is over, you know, but um, so I'll practice usually silently these days and chant internally um, or, or just softly out loud and then periods of silence. I really am 
very much in a practice of being, you know, the purified form of mantra is silence in the sense of like, not just not speaking, but listening to the, the universe or one's inner kind of self or soul. And that doesn't mean that I'm sitting there, you know, in communion with the divine the whole time. Often it's like lists or to-dos or things that, that, you know, are super mundane, but I'll just note that and then bring my mind back to that inner kind of consciousness of, of being conscious. So it's, it's a subtle practice, but a really, um, really supportive one. So it's about not allowing yourself to spiral into your thought patterns, but rather not stop them because you can't, but keep coming back. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. Just a a practice of, you know, Viveka and, and like discrimination and, and awareness of being aware. So just coming in and, and coming back gently, compassionately. Um, So I, I'd say it's like, um, yeah, it's like joyful awareness would be the way I would, I would describe it. Yeah. That's beautiful. How about you? What's your son in a like? (laughs) I'm also a mom. So I think that this (laughs) pattern is very much the pattern of the mother, which is if I want some space and time in the morning and for quiet, for stillness, for checking in, then I have to get up really early. So I'm, I'm also always the first one up and I come down here to this space, which is my office and my practice space. Mm-hmm. And I often will start with self-massage. So I'll use these massage mm-hmm. balls just like as an invitation because I don't wake up very alert. <laughs> I wake up kind of like, oh. So I will roll on these balls and it will, it'll be like this awakening practice, like this, like, oh, here you have a body and your body can feel and I'll move from that into a movement practice that it's really, it's really just about awakening the energy. So um, some, I'm very, inf- like I've taken so many different styles of yoga and my, for my home practice, my personal practice, I really think about what does my body need to be alert and alive and, and in balance right now. So sometimes it'll be things that look a little bit like Kundalini yoga, like, a, you know, maybe fast movement and very repetitive or, um, even, yeah, sometimes it'll be more traditional Hatha postures. Sometimes it'll be things that look more like Pilates or something like that. Right. And it's really, to me, that's like a preparation. Sometimes I can be in my practice during that time. But sometimes it's really just about like having to get the, the wiggles out first. And then at the end of that, that's when I can sit and I can relate to what you're saying. It's like, okay, now I have the sense of peace. I have the sense of perspective. And then the biggest part for me, Susanna is to get in touch with my feelings (laughs) because we talked a little bit um, before we started recording about our backgrounds and growing up and stuff. And so the survival pattern that I picked up was really shutting myself off from my emotions Mm. and like being very protective, self-protective and like, Oh, if I don't feel anything, I can't be hurt. And so Mm. 
when I meditate, I, I try not to be so in the head because that's more, that's easier for me to be in my head. And I try to go to my heart and, Mm -hmm. and to feeling what is real for me in this moment, especially on an emotional level, just because that's more subtle for me, (laughs) you know, like I can watch my thoughts but it feels like my emotions are often just buried under these different layers of protectiveness. So that's the biggest thing. That's what I'm kind of preparing myself for or, or releasing some of the obstructions to with asana mm-hmm. is then to be able to like check in and actually be in the moment current with my feelings. Mm-hmm. That's so powerful. Yeah. Yeah, because that, you know, for me, yoga is so much about uncovering like the the veils over our true selves. And so we all have different veils and some of us need to remove like so we can connect to the heart, the emotions, you know, and certainly I do as well. <laughs> so, um, so thank you for sharing that. It's so beautiful. Yeah. So a little bit ago, you um, you referred to Viveka, and also in your book, you refer to both Vichara and Viveka. Yeah. And I would love if you would share a little bit about these terms and why they're essential for sadhana. Yeah. Yes. Um, so Viveka is discrimination you know, and, uh, and wise discrimination. And it's important, you know, for me in, in practice is like, we're, I think of really like the Gayatri mantra is like, discriminating between the real and the unreal. And there's so many things in our world, like, systems of supremacy, uh, capitalism, you know, if you think of all the ads we see day in and day out, something like, I don't even know, 20 to 30,000 ads that we see daily. And those ads are telling us that something is lacking, that something is wrong, right? To convince us to then spend money to purchase something. And so there's like this hole in us that is not a true hole, um, it might be quite natural to have a feeling of lack or feeling of wanting more, but that feeling is just being nourished and actually like (laughs) encouraged by our culture and, and our world as we live today. And so, so much of the time we need Viveka to discriminate around what is true and what's not true what's true for us, you know, for me or for you, um, what's aligned with my values and what's not in the, the choices and the things that I'm doing throughout, throughout the day. And, and that kind of, I think of it as critical thinking, you know, um, it's, it's a tool. It's a tool of practice and it's been a tool of yogic practice. Uh, one of my colleagues, Dr. Sham Ranganathan, who I just love so much, who's a contemporary yoga philosopher, and a Sri Lankan uh, person who who is doing this work, he always says yoga is and always has been a conversation around disagreement, right? We don't all have to 
think the same thing, right? I'm not saying all of us need to toast some party line to be authentic yogis. That's not what this is about. Um, there's always been differences of opinions. There's always been dissent. There's always been different ideas about how to get to samadhi or liberation personally and socially. And there's been groups of yoga practitioners. And when I say always, I mean, even like hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, there's been different pathways. There's been renunciate pathways. There's been householder pathways. There has been bhakti pathways where um, folks in particular, you know, women or outcast folks were rebelling against the institutions that yoga had gone and moved into. And were saying like, I don't need anything. I don't need a priest or you know, uh, an intermediary between me and the divine, I can access it like naked and chanting in, in the village, you know? And, um, and so, <laughs> so for me, what's so important about Viveka is that, that agreement that we don't all have to think the same way, but we do need to be accountable to a kind of critical thinking and critical inquiry that's connected to self-study and svadhyaya and also to ahimsa and showing up for non-harm in our own lives, but also interrupting harm wherever we, we find it. So vichara is like discrimination and deliberation. And, and so they both kind of go together and, and support one another. So I, I would say they're like the two different tools of, of yogic um, critical thinking is, is really the best way I, I would describe it. And I think we really need that today. I mean, there's been so much misuse of yogic practices and especially now more recently with uh, conspiracy theories and, you know, like pandemic COVID deniers and all of these things that are stemming from within our broader yoga community in the West, right? And it's so I think it's kind of up to us to say, actually, that is watering down what yoga is. That's not what yoga stands for. Um, yoga is a, a pathway of discerning uh, truth and thinking critically and um, and really trying to sort out the real from the unreal and taking a stand from, from our values and our ethics in our own lives and, and with others. Yeah. So what I, what I'm hearing is this way that yoga has of adapting to the current moment mm. and how, whatever the, whatever the whole is that we're experiencing, yoga is there to show us the wholeness, right? Mm. Show us ourselves without a whole. And that, I, I mean, I think that that's why yoga was invented mm. because human nature is to find the whole. Human nature is to find reasons and ways to suffer. It's like this weird tendency that I think has kept people alive, right? It's a survival mechanism. And the suffering that can be avoided should be avoided. Therefore, <laughs> let's develop some tools to help us figure out which suffering can be avoided. Mm. Yeah. 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 It really is a pathway of 
understanding the creation of suffering and then moving to relieve that suffering in our own lives and, and with others. And it might look different for you than it looks for me, but the shared value and commitment to those values, you know, it's also an ethical practice and an ethical philosophy. And that is an important piece that I think a lot of people forget or, or just conveniently don't know because in, and this is part of what colonialism has done to a field of study and practice like yoga is say, well, yoga, it's either religion or it's fitness, you know? And so you've got these two extremes which leave out the whole breadth of, of the practice where it's a moral philosophy. But in a kind of supremacist framework, there was, you know, and so in Indology, meaning the Western study of like Indian philosophy and these practices, there was no room for yoga to be a theory of knowledge or an ethical practice, because that would actually mean that those savages, quote unquote, right, uh, have a complex idea about right and wrong and what is a way to live in the world. And so that was beyond the comprehension of the colonials, because then they would not have a good justification for uh, oppression of millions of people. And we're living out the legacy of that, where yoga is either, you know, banned as a religion and, you know, we're trying to take over Christian schools or whatever, or uh, misunderstood as just fitness. And so we miss out on the richness of the practice because of that legacy. If we're not thoughtful and careful about how we're, you know, engaging with yoga. And that very piece of self-inquiry, I think, is what makes yoga so powerful because mm -hmm. there are very few philosophies, certainly no religions. I mean, I think that's what clearly differentiates it from a religion is this emphasis on examine your own lived experience, come to your own conclusions and question everything you experience. Yeah. Like that is something that you don't see in a religion. So it really puts it in the, in the place of a philosophy, but in any framework of thinking that we might try on to see how it, uh, it works for us, that to me is essential. Like if we do not have the practice of self-inquiry, then we're going to fall into all of the worst traps of logical thinking right <laughs> and because it's human nature because we you know like we are going to live out our nature if we do not question mm. and so that is such a beautiful invitation and that is why you know my experience of reading your book was that it was actually filled with practice and it was all self-inquiry practice. Like it was, it was, I mean, every section had practice in it. So could there be a part two? Of course. Yeah, there could be a part two, but I thought there was a ton of practice in there. Well, thank you. That's, <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, Cause that was my intention was, was to come at it more from, from the reflection, from the, how is this showing up in your life from the curious exploration of what might this be for you, you know, in your context, in your world, in your community. Um, yeah. Rather than be like, here's these 10 things that you need to do to have uh, an authentic yoga practice. To me, that's not the answer. 
right? No one can give you that answer. It takes all of us. Like this movement to really um, expand yoga back into what it's always been out of these kind of small pigeonholes of fitness or just religion, which you're absolutely right. It's so much more. It's always been more. It takes all of us, every single one. So everyone listening, you know, like the students you have, the teachers you have, the friends, like all of us are really engaged in this together and we'll do our part in it in our own unique way and in a way that's specific to us and in the way our purpose carries us forward with the parts and the aspects of yoga that are most aligned, I think, with the way that we need to express ourselves or, or emerge and grow. Yeah. In the beginning, in the beginning of this conversation, you made reference to the air we breathe and the water we swim in. And I think that because the air we breathe and the water we swim in is capitalism, there's this sense that if you cannot see the practice, it's not valuable, right? There's this Mm. lack of and, and for a good reason, right? It's, it's not enough to just inquire, right? So we do, we do need both, but I think we have to inquire first. Like, I think that is part one is just to ask ourselves these questions, honestly, to ask ourselves these questions without already knowing the answer. Yeah. 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 It's so true. And, and so many folks, especially in the West, I think come to the practice from the physical, from, you know, the fitness yoga or gym yoga or whatever. And, and so have that aha of, wow, I feel really good. What more is going on here? Right. So encouraging ourselves and each other to take the time and make the space for that inquiry. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have one final question for you before we wrap up. And I'm always really curious because my audience is primarily yoga teachers Yeah. and the yoga teacher trainings around the world are so varied Mm. and so differing in quality and so differing in focus. If you could influence all the teacher trainings out there, what would be your priority? What would you change? What would you focus on? I think about this a lot because I run yoga teacher trainings. I kind of stumbled into it because I'm an educator. I was a teacher, high school teacher before. Um, And so I've always thought about learning in the best way that people learn and um, different modalities for learning. And then now I explore and um, think about yoga. and, And so for me, I think it's twofold. One would be how to expand beyond the physical practice really in depth and concretely. So the eight limbs of yoga, but more than the eight limbs, you know, including practices like, you know, Kriya practices or um, other lifestyle and ethics practices, again, beyond the yamas and yamas, you know, there's more uh, ethic yoga ethics going in depth into those in a way that brings them alive and isn't just like, let's cover these, but the teacher training isn't actually practicing them or guiding students to practice them. And then 
so that's one aspect is like a fuller expanse of all that yoga is yoga is a living practice and as a lifestyle and a way of being yoga in every moment and then the other would be an understanding of the causes and conditions of oppression you know we mentioned like capitalism white supremacy you know supremacies in general and all the ways that feed and and kind of nurture separation in our present day, which is the opposite of yoga, of union. So having a really robust explanation of that and understanding of that and then practices to counter it. So really, I would say, you know, like an anti-racist, anti-oppression practice in yoga teacher trainings, which would include diverse teaching faculty, uh, scholarship, and, you know, like robust recruitment and support for folks who would be taking the training where they're not, they don't feel tokenized, but they feel very welcomed and included and represented. We're so far from there, you know, in most teacher trainings that, um, that I think we have quite a long way to go. And I'm really interested and passionate in whatever, steps in the right direction, like in that direction of kind of more expanded yoga education and then more justice and, and equity oriented education we, we can create. So that's a real passion of mine. I, I'm really curious and interested to see it's a vision I hold because truly like the next generation of folks, they're not just yoga teachers, right? Like they're yoga leaders. They're really leading with a practice of personal and social transformation. And to do that, have to be really grounded in some concrete tools and practices that are relevant for today. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, I think we're gonna see a lot of change over the next like five, 10 years of yoga in our field. Um, and everyone, all of us are like part of this. We're at an exciting time in this practice. I agree. I think we've seen an incredible amount of change already in the last five years or so. I mean, mm -hmm. just really a mind blowing amount of change. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So that's why you wrote the book and that's why you're writing a second book. Yeah. And if anybody listening wants to find out more about you or get a hold of the book, where should they look? Yeah, they can go to embrace yoga's roots book com or my website, which is my name, Susanna Barkataki, and they can get a free chapter uh, from the book that's all about trauma-informed yoga. It's always been part of the practice. It's not a new thing, uh, but I wanted to give a free chapter that was really useful for folks, so tools for dealing with anxiety and stress and all of the things we're facing right now and a continued global pandemic and the pandemic of ongoing racism, or get the book um, online or uh, a hard coffee. And um, the other place I love to connect with folks is on Instagram. I'm always doing like reels and kind of yoga education. So I really believe in like making this, not making, but having fun while also doing the work of yoga and liberation. So that's where I get to express my creativity and um, one of the places and make stories and reels and stuff that, that brings this work alive in a really playful, but also like thought provoking way. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Well, thank you, Susanna, so much for taking the time to share some of your wisdom with us and for the work you're doing. Yeah. Thank you so much for having this platform and, 
you know, making the, the education available for all of the teachers and practitioners that you do. I'm so grateful for you and for the whole community of all of us as yoga uh, practitioners. Me too. Speaking with Susanna was so uplifting and so inspiring. I think you could probably hear that in my voice as you listen to our conversation. Sometimes I think of social justice as being really problem focused, but it doesn't need to be. I love the positive and proactive energy that Susanna brings to her work. I'm so grateful to Susanna and to all the brave voices who speak out against injustice and invite each of us into a stronger relationship with our own integrity. To me, this willingness to look at ourselves honestly is an essential component of a healthy yoga practice. It cannot always be light and rainbows because we're humans and humans have shadows. And when our shadows go unexamined and they go unquestioned, that's when we hurt each other and the planet. When I look back at my own family history and my learned patterns, I don't like to think who I would be without my yoga practice and what I have learned from it. It's been instrumental in helping me to see myself and to see those learned patterns for what they are instead of assuming them to be my identity or perhaps even worse, pretending that they don't exist. One of the pieces that's been coming home to me recently is the practice of self-compassion when I experience emotional pain. I am sure that I'm not the only one who has a tendency to numb and avoid as soon as emotional pain is present. So right now, a big part of my practice is to try to catch myself in that numbing process and to apply instead the balm of self-compassion before the numbness sets in, before I distract myself. Now, I definitely don't always get there, but I'm celebrating even when I notice after the fact that I forgot to do it, because in my experience, that noticing, that's the first step. And I probably shouldn't be surprised by this, but it feels shockingly powerful when you realize you can soothe your own hurt feelings. In a way, it feels like finally growing up after a really very extended adolescence. I wonder if you can relate. And if so, I'm curious, what are your defense mechanisms when you experience emotional pain? Do you tend to numb with alcohol, shopping, or social media? Do you get angry? Do you get despondent? Do you get self-destructive? If you're interested, take a few minutes to journal or contemplate after this episode is over. Is there a way for you to incorporate more self-compassion along with your current coping mechanisms, whatever those mechanisms are, right? The ones that numb you out because they're there for a reason. It's not like they're inherently bad or wrong, but I believe that we can reduce our reliance on this type of coping mechanism through self-compassion. And I don't have any illusions that I can prevent my own brain from doing this self-protective work. So I'm just trying to slowly reduce my reliance on it. And if you're working on something similar, I'm really glad to be in your company. My morning movement and meditation practice are part of what helps me to keep this intention front and center. 
So as always, before I finish this episode, here's a reminder to make time for your own personal practice, both in that ritualized fashion that for me, it just doesn't work if I'm not doing it in the morning, like trying to fit it in at some other point in the day, it doesn't work. But any time of day that does work for you, of course, is perfect. But then the idea is to use that to plant these intentions, to plant this awareness so that you can bring it back up throughout the rest of your day so that your entire day, as Susanna and I spoke about in this episode, your entire day can be your yoga practice, at least woven in and out throughout your day. That's all for today. Thank you so much for listening and thank you for caring enough to teach yoga.